This is where we meet, sharing conversations from New Mexico and beyond. I'm Chelsea Reedy, and this show is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. On today's show, Jacqueline Paul speaks with Bianca Manuelita Encinias on her research that investigates and deconstructs inaccurate historical images, perspectives, and interpretations of Mestiza, Mexican, Spanish, and Nueva Mexicana women in the field of planning within the Wagon Mound area a village in northeastern New Mexico between Springer and Las Vegas. Previously called El Pueblo de Santa Clara and Pinkerton, once a United States post office was established in 1882, Wagon Mound was the decided name. Why? Well, the village is located near a mound, and the shape of that mound resembles a covered wagon. Most of the people in this area were and are descendants of the resettlement that followed the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, most of whom, according to Spanish records, were racially and ethnically mixed from Mexican Indian, Spanish Pueblo, or other Native American tribes. We speak with Encinias about her oral history project that was developed through the stories of her grandmothers, Lupe Martinez and Bedelia Encinias. These women were ranchers, farmers, healers, storytellers, businesswomen, social workers, and carriers of traditions and culture. Here's Bianca Manuelita Encinias and Jacqueline Paul. So you and I share a connection to Wagon Mound, New Mexico, and yours is through your grandparents and mine is through my grandfather. And I was wondering if we could just first start by talking about three things. Where is Wagon Mound, New Mexico? What was it known for? And uh, why does it remain to be a special place in New Mexico? So both my maternal and my paternal grandparents are from Wagon Mound, and it's located in northeastern New Mexico, about 30 minutes um, north of Las Vegas. And what is special about it was the question. <laughs> yes. What is it? Uh, why, why does it remain to be a special place in New Mexico? I guess for everyone, but maybe even for you. Growing up, even though we were first generation in the city of Albuquerque, um, we were always in Wagamount because we have our ranches on both our maternal and our paternal sides. So we have what we call ranches today. Um, and then we also have our homes in the village as well. Although I was first-generation city of Albuquerque, we were always going up to Wagamount, whether it was my grandparents or my uncles or my aunts or my parents. Um, so it was always a part of our life. So I consider myself semi-rural, semi-urban, um, because even in the South Valley, when they relocated my maternal parents from Wagamount to Albuquerque and they moved them to the South Valley, we still had goats and cows and horses and huge gardens. And so... I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have breakfast, lunch, and dinner prepared for me. Um, <laughs> there was fresh eggs. I mean, we were organic before organic was cool. Um, so organic food was a part of my life from the moment I was born. And um, and being prepared fresh food from breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then also um, killing of animals, right? And, and for, for eating, not for, for sport or anything like that, but... Um, you know, my grandfather, my grandmother and family members would kill sheep or cows or, or chickens that we would eat. Mm -hmm. And so I saw, I was fortunate to be able to see that whole process. Right. Um, so it was kind of interesting to think about growing up in an urban context, but still, um, carrying those, those rural traditional customs and traditions. So I think that that's what makes Wagamount unique is that the, we've been able to maintain those customs and traditions. And a lot of people have been able to maintain their land. And it seemed, I remember one time I had a sticker on my car that said I survived Bean Day. 
Wagaman, New Mexico. And I swear, every time I was at a stoplight or a stop sign, someone would honk at me. And someone always has the story about Wagaman and his connection to their connection to Wagaman. Yeah. Yeah. For, for as, as small of a, a town it is, you know, it, it, there are so many connections and I, I find that too. I'm like, Oh, I went up to bean day. It's always, it, it bean day is a, a, a pretty familiar one, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well known. It's pretty well known. Bean Day is an (laughs) annual festival that is celebrated during the week of Labor Day weekend. According to local oral traditions, the first Bean Day was held in 1909 and was called the Mora County Farmers Harvest Jubilee. A community member by the name of Jijinho Gonzalez and other community members cooked up a pot of beans in wash boilers behind the schoolhouse to share with the community. As a gathering point for ranchers and farmers, Wagon Mound's celebration of the harvest was an important time of year as it brought extended family members and community together to share their harvest and livestock. Here's Jacqueline Paul talking with oral historian Bianca Manuelita Encinias. Your research was inspired by both of your your grandmothers. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about them? My my mom was first generation to go to college. And so, um, and, and, uh, What's interesting about her is that not only did she get her bachelor's, but she got two masters and eventually a PhD in retirement. Um, And so when I was little, there was always all of her college books and bookshelves, right? And so I just remember always, uh, you know, laying on the floor and, and reading her books that she had from her different college classes. And I noticed that, um, or books that I read that there was this image of the, Latina or Mexican woman as this passive, quiet woman who was dominated by her overly masculine, oppressive uh, husband, right? And I was pretty confused by that as a child in the sense that that was not my experience or my reality, not only with my own mom, but my maternal and my paternal grandmother and my aunts. both my maternal and paternal grandmother were uh, the center of the family and um, were involved in every decision-making that occurred within the family, right? And so so at a young age, I was really aware of that misperception. And so as I got older, I really wanted to document some of the stories and see if if that was was that just in my head or was that a reality? So I thought the best way to kind of do some research around that was to interview my aunts and uncles on my maternal and paternal side, and see if their stories reaffirmed what my theory was. Right, and it was through those interviews that all all those stories came out that decisions were not made without either my maternal or paternal grandmother's participation. Uh, and that those decisions, we, when we're looking at decisions, it's not just about, you know, whether Ben is going to get a new shirt, but it was economic decisions because it was about whether or not a cow was going to be sold or a goat was going to be sold or maybe a particular piece of land. Um, because within my families, the land was inherited through my maternal side. So both my grandmothers brought to the marriage. Of course, my grandfathers loved them, but my grandmothers also brought with them land um, and animals, right? And mm-hmm. so um, so they were very much active decision makers in that land. And 
how anything that was created off that land was distributed or sold. And so what that shows is that not only were women involved in in family decisions and community decisions, but they're also involved in economic transactions. And so how do we start to look at um, Chicana, Mexicana, or Mexicana women as business women, right? Right, right. So it's like this reconstructing of history, ultimately, for you, and then also contributing that in in your research. I, I think... What made me really think about it a lot is when you think about New Mexico, all you hear is the negative socioeconomic indicators, right? How bad our education is, how poor we are, and all from an income perspective and all of these things, right? And, you know, everybody talks about an assets-based approach, um, but when they talk about it, they talk about, oh, we need to do build that, like if it doesn't exist. And the reality is it does exist and it has historically exist, right? existed. Um, And I think Northeastern New Mexico is really complicated from a a historical perspective, right? I don't think that what has been written today um, really captures the history of that area correctly, right? And who we are as Mexican, Indigenous, or um, even if you think about Spain, the reality is that the Moors controlled Spain, or really the Iberian Peninsula, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The Moors controlled the Iberian Peninsula for 700 years. And then when Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand came in, I think within the first 20 years of them being within control of what we now call Spain, or when they came into control, became Spain, that still we had a lot of Moors who were living in that part of the Iberian Peninsula. So, you know, I think it becomes really complicated to just put it into this framework of like Spanish, white, and indigenous, right? It's actually much more complicated um, even when you look at the Asekias, mm-hmm. because it didn't, it, it could be rooted in Mesopotamia and Africa, right? When you look at the history of the Iberian Peninsula and you look at the Asekia or that irrigation system or the Odno, and then you look at New Mexico um, and the concept of land tenure as land has been handed down from generation to generation, how that's an asset, right? And connecting back to the negative socioeconomic indicators. If you look at New Mexico, even though we're a pretty low income state and we have all these negative indicators, one of the positive indicators is land ownership, right? And up until recently, um, land and houses were pretty affordable here in New Mexico up until the past year and a half, two years, right? And so how do we start to look at our assets and historically, and how do we start to rewrite history correctly? Um, and then as part of that rewriting, looking at land tenure and how that's been able to help us build our assets and how that's also helped a lot of women. And in particular, and I think this is complicated. I didn't use the term Chicana in my paper intentionally, although I did use a lot of different terms because I use terms based on how those people who I interviewed, my family members, how they identified or how my grandmother identified. So those were the terms that I wanted to honor because that's how they identified at that moment in time in history, right? So really looking at how historically land tenure has been passed down from generation to generation and how our generation has benefited from that in terms of our asset building and how we as a state need to really focus on that and and really invest 
in particular in women of color and Native Indigenous women, to help them and their families to protect that land and their estates, right? Um, so that that can continue to be passed on to, from generation to generation. You you wrote about with the implementation of property tax within New Mexico, how when New Mexico became a territory of the United States, you spoke about two significant changes that occurred. One of them being the changes to last names, which I thought was fascinating. Um, and then the idea of the ownership of property. So I, and you can correct me if I'm mistaken, but from communal to more private property, um, can you talk a little bit more about those two two changes that happened? Typically, not all the time, right? But typically, um, the last name of a child is passed down from their father, right? And so we assume that that's how it is for all societies that we, we come from, with the exception of indigenous societies in this part of the world, right? But then what I came to find out is I. It was not correct for us to look at the naming patterns based on the U.S. system, which is based on England, but it would be more correct for us to look at, obviously, indigenous naming patterns, but then also for us, for those of us who are mixed, um, to look at naming patterns of Mexico, which is also indigenous people, but specifically looking at the influence that the Iberian Peninsula or Spain had. And so when you look at Spain and the Iberian Peninsula at that time, the last names of children weren't assigned to them based on their paternal background or connections or their father. It was really based on which parent had kind of sort of a better political or economic clout within that particular society. And so based on that, is how children would be assigned their last names. So it's everything from our naming patterns to the way that land is passed down to the way that we do certain irrigation techniques or ordno. Um, so it, it, it just kind of really flagged to me um, this whole concept of, once again, who gets to write our history, and that's a dominant culture and a, a particular outlook, and the need that there is to capture these, I don't even like the word alternative, but uh, different and perspectives of history and how do we start to document that? So that's what this thesis, you know, really kind of dabbled my toes in just a little bit. Well, and you and you you talk about like about the transfer of knowledge through oral traditions and the knowledge that can only be handed down through like action and the, in the process of doing. Um, and my favorite example that, that you had, that you gave, um, in your work was, um, with your grandmother Lupe Martinez, who would take her, her family members to a location near Wagon Mound Hill to gather, uh, white dirt so that they could use the, the white dirt to paint their homes. Do you have another example of stories like this? Every summer, <laughs> and my mom was a teacher, so, you know, then we were able to spend many summers in Waigamon, and so it would always be my mom and my grandmother and, you know, my brother and my cousins and my, my aunt, it was her children, my cousins, and so it was always, we were cleaning something or painting something. I grew up painting houses a lot, and, um, and, and what was one summer in particular, we were painting the inside of the home that my grandparents built, the second home that they built at, at the ranch that um, they maintain. And so to do that, um, 
we actually drove from the ranch back towards the village. There's a certain part by the Wagamount Hill um, where there's this white dirt. So then we had a bucket and we put the white dirt in there and then we went back to the ranch and we put water in there. And then that's what we used. I guess that's what historically has been used and traditionally um, to paint the walls, right? Um, and at the time, I was so young that I didn't even really think about that. It was just... Um, it the thing you did. <laughs> yeah, it was just something we did, right? It wasn't something until later on in life that I really kind of understood and valued in the way that I do now. So I think that that's the same thing, even if you think about... Um, I remember when I was little as well, my grandmother and I... Uh, she wanted to do a little project and we just started building. It wasn't an ordno, but it was like an ordno. And so just getting all the rocks from around and plastering it. And it was just something that we just kind of naturally did. That was just the way that my grandmother was raised. So it wasn't like anything that was contrived or anything like that. It was just life for the way that my grandparents were raised. And so, and, and then you could say that even with going back, and I know this is complicated for some people, and I, I understand that, but even when you think about the killing of an, of an animal for eating and, uh, the, you know, just watching that whole process through where they use every part of the animal that you could, right? Even the intestines and how they would clean out the intestines and then they would get the blood and cook it in a particular way to where it was sort of like a hamburger texture and then put the blood in the intestines and then bake it. And it was sort of like a sausage or my, my grandmother was uh, my maternal grandmother was like to joke around a lot. And so um, one of my uh, favorite desserts, which isn't made or isn't very common anymore, uh, unless you go to the Pueblos, it's common like in some of the Pueblos, right, is panocha. So that's something that's being lost as well, right? Um, a lot of people don't know what panocha is other than, you know, the, they think of a particular female body part. And I don't even know, it's not a, always a female body part. It's actually a pudding um, that you usually eat around Easter time. But for us, we would, my grandma would, would make it occasionally throughout the year. And so she was what, funny. What, what is in it? Is it, I'm just imagining cinnamon, but I don't know. Um, it's sort of like, uh, when you buy, you can buy it at the store. Um, and I, I don't know what it's called at the store, but it's like a flower texture. Um, but then there's also piloncillo, which is kind of like this cylinder kind of sugar and people make it different ways. Right. And so it's kind of like, um, a pudding that has a texture that feels like a lot of little balls, right? Like, ah, like yes, I have, I've, yeah, yeah. And so then, um, and so I remember, I just to play, play, you know, so we could have fun, especially as she hit her mid nineties. Um, I would go over and visit her, and I would say, oh, one of these days you're gonna have to make me some panocha, and then she <laughs> would start to giggle, and then she would say, oh well. You know, some people get hurt when you say the word panocha because they think it's something else. And I tell them, I don't see what the problem is. We say huevos, we say cookies, you know. And and so, you know, I just think that um, these ladies, not just my grandmothers, but many like them, were ahead of their time in many ways, right? In terms of, um, I consider them kind of like Renaissance women, right? Because um, they knew how to live off the land, 
In fact, one of the stories that came out of my interviews was that um, on one side of my family that one of my uncles shared was that he never saw a doctor until he had had to have a physical because he wanted to play basketball and the school required it, right? So basically that my grandmother was able to heal all of them, all of them with the knowledge that she had with the herbs, right? And so you think like these women were every, they knew how to, I still have dresses that my maternal grandmother made me from when I was four, five, and six. And, you know, she didn't need a pattern. Um, she just did it all by with the string and just the skills. So master seamstresses, master gardeners, farmers, ranchers, and who knew how to live off of the land, right? I, I think another special story for me is I remember one time for my paternal grandmother, um, they had bought a sheep and they were going to kill it to eat it. And all the men were out there, including my grandpa and some, and some of my cousins, and then my grandpa was told um, one of my cousins to go get my grandma because none of them wanted to kill the <laughs> sheep, right? Because it's it's hard, right? Nobody wants to be that person at the end of the day. But then here comes my grandmother, who at that time was in her early 70s, and she had her little knife in her hand, and she had a little bit of a limp, but here, and she had this whistle, and here she was coming, and she came and took care of business. And, um, and then, uh, and then the men, um, then, you know, took care of the rest, right? But she was the one who actually did the, the slitting of the throat, which is the fastest way to kill an animal. And so that was just really amazing for me to, to, to experience and witness. And I think I was, um, either nine or 10, that specific story that I shared. Um, and just to watch the, the respect that the men had for her. Um, and that she was the one that was called to come and kill the animal, right? So the role that women play in our communities um, has just been historically captured inaccurately, right? I know that was more than you asked, but once you got me going on stories, then I kept on thinking of a next one. <laughs> well, I have more, <laughs> more questions that hopefully lead to more stories. Well, but, well the, the interesting thing, I'm sorry to go back to the panocha, oh, the interesting oh, thing about the, the panocha pudding is that my hairdresser invited me to his Pueblo for a gathering that they were having. And I was sitting there and I noticed that they have what we call panocha, right? And so I told him, oh, is that panocha? And obviously they have another word for it, right? And so he told me what they call it. And then they also, I learned something different that his particular Pueblo does. They bake the ponocho in the odno, so it kind of comes out like they bake, put it in a corn husk, and then they put it in the odno, and then it comes out kind of like a, like a pastry, a cake type of texture. Um, so it was interesting for me to see that, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I really, in, in urban society, I really don't see a lot of, However you identify, no Mexicanos, Chicano, Hispanic, Latino, I really don't see a lot of people um, even aware of that ponocha pudding anymore. Just like another thing kind of lost. Yeah, yeah, for, definitely. Do you, do you cook it for your kids? I never have. No, ah! I never have. <laughs> I never have. And my, I, my mom and I were talking about that the other day because um, we're like, one day we're going to have to do it, right? I'm, I'm not really a, a cook. Mm. Um, you know, now that I had kids, of course, I've had to learn how to cook a little bit more. I'm not a fan of it. I like to bake. But, um, but yeah, it's definitely, as I'm getting older, 
Um, I mean, for example, I'm not the one who makes the tortillas. My husband does, right? Yeah. <laughs> because what happened with my generation is I was the last one. My mother and my father were both the last in each of their families were pretty much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so out of 11 kids on one side, my dad was the youngest. And then out of eight kids on the other uh, my mom was the second to the youngest. So by the time I was born, um, my grandparents were already at a phase of their life where um, we didn't really have to help out in the same way that my aunts and uncles did. So for example, like I said earlier, when I woke up, because I, I spent a lot of time with my maternal grandparents, um, when I woke up, breakfast was ready, fresh eggs and tortillas and potatoes, um, when in the summertime, when it was lunchtime, uh, family members would come over and lunch was ready for me, whether it was beans, sopapillas, freshly baked pies, et cetera. And the same with dinner. I think at that point in my life, it was just more of a, I don't want to say a bother, but you know, at that point in my life, my grandma was like, I just need my own space. You kids go out and play and <laughs> You know, I'll call you when it's time to come in. So I didn't really learn those skills, right? It's it's the same. Like my, I've been asking my my grandmother for for years. I'm like, maybe we can like tamales, something. And she's like, no, no, no. (laughs) I think think too many tamales have been made. Your your work was inspired by your grandmother's, and in it, you 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 talked about how you didn't realize the lessons, and we've spoken a little bit about some of them. Um, and yeah, you didn't realize the lessons being told by your grandmothers when they said a dicho or shared a story. And so, do you have any other dichos that stand out that you would like to share? As I was doing the interviews, one of the stories that because a lot of my family are storytellers, right? Um, all of them. And so, um, and I had started even collecting stories um, before my thesis, because when my grandmother, my maternal grandmother died, I was asked to do her eulogy. So it was actually, that was the first time I captured stories, because when I wrote her eulogy, um, I basically asked those aunts and uncles who wanted to talk with me about it, um, to ask them to share stories with me. And then I took those stories and put together her eulogy, right? So it was basically me publicly sharing their stories with their permission. So one day we were driving because there was a lot of deaths in my family a few years ago, you know, and it made sense, um, you know, up until I believe 2017, on my paternal side, all 11 of my aunts and uncles had been alive, right? And so um, there came a time recently when a few of them passed and so I was driving and my son asked me, he said, oh, how do you handle this is so sad? What, how do you how are we going to deal with all this death? Because they're they're a gram, they're granny they're My husband's mom had also died during that time. So there was just a lot of death. Right. And my older son was upset about it and asking me how, how you cope with that. And I told him, well, son, all we can do is survive. Right. And I told him, I think that that's one of the biggest lessons that I learned from my grandmothers, because I just remember, too, another thing is my mom and I and my maternal grandmother were always going to visit people. We were always at funerals. We were always visiting, you know, my grandmother's comadres or relatives who were near their death, their last phase of life as they were transitioning from life to death. So that was a part of my life as well. And I think 
the one of my earliest lessons around death was I they had goats obviously we had goats and um I had a goat that I claimed and his name was Marshmallow and I would go and pick weeds for him and put him in the, the red little wagon and feed him and of course he got fat and I was five because I remember I had was walking home from the bus stop in kindergarten and I saw this man there with my uncle talking to my grandpa and my grandma and I was just stayed quiet and I was like, what's going on? Right. And then I just stood there being quiet and I realized that he was going to buy a goat and that obviously he was going to pick the goat that was the fattest goat. And he chose my goat, even though no one had ever given marshmallow to me. Um, he chose my goat and he bought marshmallow. Right. And I just remember obviously being really upset. And my grandmother said, you can have any other goat you want. And I told her, but I don't want any other goat. I, that's my marshmallow. And so there's was the one and only time I ran away in my life. I was five years old and I just ran to the field for marshmallow, used to hang out with his brothers and sisters. And I, you know, cried my heart out and talked to God and asked God, why did this happen? And then, uh, and then I fell asleep and I woke up and I walked to the house and my grandmother had um, dinner waiting for me, right? A warm meal. And I think that the lesson that she was teaching to me, not intentionally, but that she continued, was that life is a part, that death is a part of life, right? And that um, that I needed to prepare myself for that. So that's definitely something I carry. And, and it's interesting, it's ironic too, because I ended up marrying someone, <laughs> that makes me emotional. Um, I ended up marrying someone who's a nurse and he's a hospice care nurse, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I told him, how ironic is it that I would end up being with someone who was a hospice care nurse? And he's really, um, he's really a lot of families love that, right? Because that what an important job, right? Because we only talk about those people who help bring life into this world, but we never talk about those people who help people in a loving and compassionate way transition out of this world. And so... Um, one of those tradi- traditions that was handed down towards us, and I, I understand that everybody can do this. It's, it's complicated nowadays, right? But that um, both my grandmothers um, died at home, right? Um, and that was an important, an important tradition and value for us. special thank you to Bianca Manuelita Encinias for sharing her contribution to the oral histories of the status and social standing of the Mestiza Mexican Spanish Nueva Mexicana women in the Wagon Mound area. Where We Meet comes from Taos Center for the Arts in Taos, New Mexico, and is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Producers include Colette LaBeouf, Chelsea Reedy, Alice Morion, Ariana Cubillos-Vogler, and Joshua Aragon. Research and writing by Jacqueline Paul. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. On Where We Meet, we share conversations from New Mexico and beyond. Thanks for listening. Be well. Thank you.